Now, on this Invest Talk podcast, Justin Klein listens to your questions and provides unbiased answers. Chart is definitely in a downtrend, and it's uh, it's definitely not cheap enough yet. Invest Talk. Your participation makes it unique. 888-99-CHART. This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, August 4th, 2022 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm excited for this hour with you to answer your finance and investment questions. And I encourage your calls right now during our live stream program from 4 to 5 Pacific time. Or if you're listening after hours, you can always leave a message on our anytime number, which is always 888-99-CHART. So I have got a packed podcast for you and my focus point concerns housing. And this headline will kind of set the stage, which is the housing market correction has taken an unexpected turn. And when it comes to housing transaction, monthly payments are obviously a big driver of whether the sales activity within the market is healthy or not. So we're going to touch on that. And then we're going to look at capital expenditures, capital expenditures, something that most people don't pay attention to, but it is a huge factor in economic activity as well as keeping businesses healthy. And it's an indicator as well as how optimistic companies are about their future. So we're gonna look at that. Also, ag markets and commodity markets in general have sold off, and we're gonna look at what the catalysts are and whether that is a more of a near-term thing or likely something longer-term. And then lastly, some US generals and diplomats want Chinese companies to be excluded from things like their thrift savings plan. So government retirement plans. And uh, it's another indication that exposure to Chinese companies that are listed on our exchanges is becoming more and more of a risk. And you need to be aware of that, especially if you have some allocation there or some funds that have allocations there as well. So that's what's on my mind, but ultimately I want to know what is on your mind. So I want to see, uh, I see we have some caller voice bank questions ready to play. So let's get to one right now. Hi, Stephen Justin. I love your show. I have a question about projected earnings of oil. I was looking at the projected earnings out next year for ExxonMobil, ConocoPhillips, and it seems to be declining for their projected earnings. So I would expect their price to go down as well. So I was just curious about that. I thought this would be a great environment for commodities and especially oil for the next year. So can you expound on that a little bit? Thank you very much. Bye. It's a great question. And this is another teaching point for everyone out there to know that the 
the market is always going to price in the forward-looking earnings, the forward-looking cash flow, right? They don't care. The market doesn't care very much about what happened last quarter or the quarter before or the whole last year. They care more about what is going to happen in the future. And you're right, for Exxon, they're supposed to earn $12.30 this year, but more importantly, $10.47 next year. And that's what the market is going to think about is, okay, there's going to be a reversion to the mean. And that's kind of what the, uh, the analysts are expecting is that, hey, maybe oil prices aren't going to stay this high. Uh, remember, Exxon is vertically integrated. And so they have a lot of different type of, types of businesses that uh, were very, very profitable over the past year. And maybe they're going to, once again, revert to the mean. Are they going to always stay to those uh, levels? Probably not. And so analysts know this and they try to gauge how sustainable uh, those earnings levels are. And that's one reason why you've seen the energy sector pull back as well as the, the energy prices in general, right? We hit 130 on oil and now we're uh, into the high 90s. So uh, that naturally is going to feed into earnings expectations going forward. And then you have a lot of other factors like the availability of workers and how much they pay workers uh, to work on their rigs, uh, the cost of the inputs and the, and the machinery that goes into uh, maintaining and, and growing their, their well count, uh, etc. So remember, the market's always looking forward. And, and just because you're having a step back in earnings doesn't mean necessarily that's the end of the world. Before the pandemic, they made two dollars. Exxon made two dollars and twenty-five cents in twenty nineteen. Four dollars and sixty-four cents in twenty eighteen. So even if you go based on that, next year they're still supposed to earn two and a half times what they did in twenty eighteen. That's still a very healthy profit profile. Now the bigger question, once again, is what is the longer-term trend of those earnings? And uh, Exxon and, and all the oil names are going to have volatility. This isn't your Procter and Gamble where they uh, earnings go up five ten percent a year and you know it's kind of a a steady steady as you go type of uh, business environment. Uh, they're price takers. Now it's a good price right now, but in general they're price takers, which means they're at the whims of the market, and so there's going to be volatility, and you need to be aware that uh, of that when you're looking at oil names and know that, hey, a 20, 30% pullback uh, from the highs in an oil name, that's not a lot of volatility for oil companies. Now, that's a lot of volatility for Procter & Gamble, and that's why you have to look at them as different risk profiles. And you have to understand that and be willing to take that risk and not panic when you see a 20% move uh, in Exxon, for example. Right now, it's down 17% from its high, 52-week high. Okay, so I like that you're looking out going forward, but you always want to look at that number in relation to its longer term trend, as well as how sustainable that number will be. And, and if it takes a step back a little bit for one year, that's not the end of the world. All right, now, my perspective segment provides an interesting look at the history of housing mortgages and mortgage rates over the decades. And I've got a lot planned for this podcast. And of course, I will take your calls live at 888 chart So I'm going to talk about mortgage rates right after I touch on the market real quick. Now, the market was, let's take a look at, uh, where is my charts? There we go. 
So the S&P, that was down about three points, pretty flat day. You had the NYSE, that was down 42 points. So a little bit worse. So underneath the surface, it was a, a modest down day. And we're more in this kind of consolidation phase over the past, call it week. And that's not surprising. We're into some resistance on the major indices. Uh, on the uh, S&P, we are up into the the 100-day moving average and kind of chopping around there and still remain within the the zone of where we consolidated back in early June and then failed from. So what happens is when you fail from a level like that, uh, that when you get back to those levels, that acts as resistance. And that's what you're seeing right now. Uh, what was interesting today on the bond market is you had rates come down again, seven basis points on the 10-year. So the last three days, a lot of volatility when it comes to the 10-year. And if you look at the, what's the move index doing? Eh, actually, it was up pretty big yesterday or, uh, on Tuesday, but the last couple of days it's come back in. But what you're seeing is some interest rate volatility driven by Fed comments, uh, economic data that continues to come in relatively weak. You had jo continuous jobless claims or new jobless claims hit a uh, high for the year last week. And that certainly is uh, something that the market's paying attention to that, hey, the job market's getting weaker and that means the Fed will pivot. So that's why you're getting a lot of gyration here in the market right now. Well, we're heading into a break and after the break, I'll get to my perspective segment. So give me a call at 888-99-CHART. Why do listener questions make Invest Talk better? Which of these would you recommend? Because each caller presents fresh questions in their voice. I was curious if you still think aluminum has a ways to go from here. When do I know the right time to take profits? Should I be looking for an exit? Should I be holding here? And listeners instinctively realize that Invest Talk uniquely offers a welcome dose of investing satisfaction. I think you have a terrific show and I've learned a whole lot. Hey guys, love your show. Uh, I've been listening for several years now and I've learned a lot. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley understand what investors need and want. I would look at it from a tax perspective. If there's no tax implications, move on, find better ways to use that money. I'm going with the odds. I think a half position now would at least get you in it and get you watching it so you won't lose track of it. Don't forget to call Investor 888-99-CHART. listening to invest talk we've seen the markets go up then down sideways and around it's called volatility and if you're a serious investor you'll have finance and investment questions for justin klein he's here now taking your calls live invest talk 888-99-CHART we're going to go to North Carolina and we're going to talk to Sid about Encore Capital Group, ECPG. Do you own it or looking to buy it? Hi, Justin. Thank you so much for taking my call and sure. thanks for all the knowledge. I sure. do have a small position and uh, with the reasonable 30-40% profit as well. Uh, but today, I don't know what happened, but after the result, was the result wrong or something wrong happened, but the price has gone down almost 20%. So I'm thinking of two options. Should I add more um, uh, at this point or should I hold for a long term? 
and like to take your opinion before I proceed further. Thank you so much. Sure. This is Encore Capital Group. And this is actually a name that we do own for clients as well. We bought it a while ago and yeah, it had a, a rough, uh, rough day after earnings back to where we were in late, uh, late June. So it didn't break any major support. So that's uh, certainly a positive. Now this, uh, this is something we did expect that earnings were to come back down to earth. Uh, they did very, very well during the pandemic and the stimulus packages that were, were passed uh, and given money to individuals in order to repay their, their debts. And that's what this company does is they buy, they purchase, collect and manage unsecured consumer credit card receivables. So what they do is they have relationships with the large banks and the large banks, they don't want to track down all of their uh, credit card customers that don't pay. And so eventually they write them off, they close the accounts and they sell them off to something like Encore Capital Group and Encore goes and tries to uh, recover this, at least some of what uh, the, the receivable is. So they sell it off to Encore Capital Group by pennies on the dollar and it's up to them to collect it because transfers basically the obligation to Encore. And they're the largest uh, debt collecting, public debt collecting company uh, in, in uh, at least here in the U.S., $1.3 billion market cap. So certainly on the small cap side, but the return on equity longer term is very good. They're, they're well run. They know how to to invest and, and buy these uh, particular uh, this particular debt uh, and their profits have continued to uh, increase. Um, and so they're very well run. And uh, I, I think this is a bit of an overreaction because they're still supposed to make nearly $13 per share this year. And if you go forward next year to about $10 per share, that's still a five and a half times forward looking multiple. That's still pretty cheap. They've been buying back shares. Um, so to me, this is a buying opportunity, an Encore Capital Group. Now we're going to go to Sammy in San Francisco who wants to talk about mutual funds. Uh, hey, Justin, thanks for taking my call. Um, sure. I have a very basic question for you. I'm looking to you know, put uh, a good chunk of money in the market in the next couple of months. Mm -hmm. And I've been confused you know, between mutual funds and the ETF uh, mm -hmm. because based on my online research, they say you can go with either. Uh, doesn't really make much of a difference. Um, so if you can clarify and maybe give, give your recommendation on uh, which one to buy and hold for the long term. I'm, I mean like next uh, 15, 20 years uh, or more. Okay. Great question. Well, if you're looking longer term, you're right. It doesn't really matter which one you use because uh, the intraday tradability of a, an ETF isn't really going to matter to you. Um, in fact, probably weeds out a lot of the noise uh, that can happen intraday. Uh, and so mutual funds, they're priced on a daily basis, the close of every day. Uh, ETFs are typically, almost all of them are index funds, which have their merits. But what's good about a, the mutual fund side is you can buy index funds as well as tons and tons of more active funds. And as you get further away from larger cap and into mid and small cap, which frankly, if you're looking longer term, you should probably have more exposure to, you can find wonderful uh, small and mid caps that are going to well outperform their, their index and uh, definitely the S&P. And so uh, I would say if you're looking longer term, 
mutual funds are the way to go. Now, there's a lot more names to, to weed through and, and certainly uh, a good amount more work. Uh, but if you can do the work and it's probably worthwhile for you to do that, if you're thinking longer term, then you're going to have just simply more opportunities to, to, to kind of weed through. So I encourage you to go with mutual funds for the long term. Still focus on the, the, the fees, uh, long term performance, management, stability, etc. A good place for research, Morningstar.com. Uh, we subscribe to the full version, but even the basic version has some good information. So thanks for the call. Now we're heading into a break and after I'm going to give you some historical perspective on mortgages. So give me a call at 888-99-CHART. You are listening to Invest Talk. Every Friday on the program and the podcast, Steve Peasley shares highlights from the newest edition of the KPP Premium Newsletter. Listen Fridays to Invest Talk. And now, Steve and Justin welcome your calls and questions. 888 99Chart. Now for some perspective. Now, for most people, the biggest investment they probably have, at least during their early working years, is their home. And that acquisition is usually accomplished with some type of loan through a mortgage. Now, essentially, mortgage is a loan secured by a property. And the modern mortgage has been around since 1930. But the idea of a mortgage has been around for a lot longer than that. Mortgages are actually mentioned in English common law documents dating back to 1190, 1190. So they've been around for nearly a thousand years. Now, here in America, in the early 1900s, homebuyers typically had to make 50% down payments, five zero. And a typical mortgage before 1930 only had three to five year in length. So think about that. You have to pay that off in a short period of time. But in 1934, during the Great Depression, trying to stir some sort of demand, the FHA was formed and it began offering 15-year and 30-year loans, making it far more affordable on a monthly basis for low and medium income individuals to buy their homes. Now, let's fast forward 50 years. Well, 1970s, uh, in the 1970s, mortgage rates started at uh, a high in 1970, around 7.3%. And rose as high as 12.9 in 1979. So a lot of parallels to now as the, the Fed was trying to fight high inflation and government, there's a lot of government spending, etc. But in 1980, 1980s were the high mark for uh, mortgages. 81 reached as high as 18%, 18, think of that, 1.8. And But by the time we hit the first part of the 90s, it, they dipped back down into the single digits as globalization increased and inflation started to come back down. Inflation was pretty high in the 70s and even the 80s. Uh, by 1999, the average rate in the 30-year mortgage was down to it was 8.06%. That was more than two percentage points lower than when it started the decade. So kind of in that high single digits is where we stuck with throughout the 90s. Started 2000s, mortgage rates averaged around 8%, then gradually fell to 5 or 6% for most of the decade before the financial crisis. And that's also spurred a lot of demand. You can see here is 5 or 6, that sounds back to, it's kind of where we are now, and that sounds high compared to 3, but that's still, if you go back to the, the early 2000s, that was kind of the average rate, and that was a stimulative rate, as you saw with the, the housing boom. 
Now, after the housing crisis, which caused 6 million people to lose their homes, uh, low housing demand was a big factor in keeping mortgage rates down, the Fed keeping rates near zero, and they hit 3.35 in May of 2013. Now, due to the COVID crisis, they hit as low as uh, two, two and a quarter, um, but rates now averaging about 5% here in the summer of 2022. So with some perspective that, hey, this is higher than three, but this is actually healthy. This is getting the housing market into a more healthy stance to where inventory can be normalized. And overall, that is, that's healthy. You don't want to see housing prices going up 10, 12, 15, 20% per year. You, it may feel good to you if you're a homeowner, but that's bad for the economy. It's bad to have uh, housing prices go up dramatically more than incomes year after year. That's happened before the financial crisis. And that's what's happened over the past couple of years. And the fact that we're having a housing correction is a good thing. Don't think of it as a bad thing. Think of it as, hey, that was an anomaly. We're getting back to something that is more realistic and should be good longer term. Now let's put it back to the Best Talk Voice Bank at 888-99 chart. Hey, Justin or Steve, this is Brandon calling from Tennessee. I was wanting your thoughts on ticker symbol SCHD. It is the Schwab U.S. Dividend Equity ETF. Could you tell me a little bit about it and tell me why I should put most, if not all, of my money into this account or into this um, fund? Thank you very much. Goodbye. Okay, let's start big picture. Should you put all of your money in this fund? Well, first off, you have to understand this is all equities. This is the Schwab Dividend Equity ETF. And it's a good fund. I will say that. It's a good fund. It's a large cap value. But large cap or just all an all equity fund is high risk. I don't care whether it's a growth fund or a value fund, it's a small cap or a large cap, it is high risk. There are shades of high risk, and this is on the lower end of the shade of high risk, but it is high risk. Uh, and you can see that by, if you go to the, the performance of it longer term, uh, it's very good, but let's go to a monthly chart and pull up a monthly chart. And you can see from during COVID, it went from about 60 all the way down to a low of 38 because it's aggressive. <laughs> and so should you put all of it? Well, if you want to be in all equities and you're a very aggressive investor, sure. Now it is, once again, it's a good fund, uh, good long-term performance. So I like that. Um, but overall, uh, it is well, well set, set up. It has top holdings of Texas Instruments, Pepsi, Coke, Home Depot. So a lot of dividend paying blue chip names. And if that's what you want exposure to, this is not a bad way to do that. So uh, overall, I'm going to give Schwab D a thumbs up. Uh, I like the overweight in financials and industrials, a little high, too high in technology. Um, but it's a pretty good fund with relatively low uh low expense ratio, but should you put all of your money into it? I don't know if I would go that far. Thanks for the call. Now we're heading into a break and we're taking your questions live at 888 chart Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay. Why? I mean, how would it come in handy and where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip or maybe you want to connect with family members? or friends from a different culture. 
I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value, so your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this, so don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Now, in the next Invest Talk, the story behind this question. Did the events of 2020 change the economy in ways we couldn't yet understand or can't yet understand? That story will be for Steve tomorrow. But for now, I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. So let's turn to the focus point, which is concerning housing, which is uh, connected to uh, what I was discussing with mortgage rates. Uh, and that's really the turn that the unexpected turn 
that most people who were calling for a housing correction uh, didn't really see. And everyone said, oh, well, the Fed's going to continue to raise interest rates, and that's going to mean higher mortgage rates. And this is another reminder that, A, the Fed doesn't directly impact or doesn't directly change the mortgage rate. Why? Because the mortgage rate is tied to the 10-year treasury rate. And the market, for the most part, dictates that rate. Now, the Fed does you know, buy and sell some 10-year treasuries through QE and QT, and they hold some, obviously, on their balance sheet. But where the 10-year transacts, transacts at is mainly up to the market and their projections for inflation going forward. And so what's happened here is that the mortgage rate has pulled back from 6.28 in June to now a little over 5%, which makes a lot of sense. The 10-year the was at 3.5 at its peak, and now we're at 2.67. So it's pulled back over 50 basis, over 100 basis points, and so has the mortgage rate. So you see that correlation there. And this is a, a big change. If you took out a mortgage at that six and call it a quarter rate and uh, in a $500,000 mortgage in June, your monthly payment would be a little shy of 3100 At 5.05%, it's a little shy of 2700 which is pretty dramatic. You're talking about a 400-ish a month uh, difference in your monthly payment. That's a That's a car payment. And it can mean the difference for a lot of buyers, whether they qualify or don't. And over a course of 30 years, that's a savings of $140,000 in interest. So what's happening here is the bond market is pricing in a higher probability of recession next year and a Fed rate cut. And that's what's pulled the market back is the expectation of a Fed pivot. And the idea that yes, the Fed is pulling forward more rate hikes, that just means that they're also pulling forward a, an economic backdrop that requires not just a pause, but actually a cut. And so cut in rates and members of the 10 years reflective reflection of the market's expectation of rates going out 10 over the next 10 years in any, you know, averaging those out over the next 10 years. And so like I said at the top of the show, that this correction is healthy. And if you have mortgage rates back around the 5% level, there still will be a correction. It'll just be at a slower pace because there's not, won't be as much pressure. There'll be still a decent amount of buyers that will qualify at 5%. And with a 1% drop in mortgage rates, housing affordability still remains historically difficult because on a year-over-year -year basis, if you include housing price increases as well as the payment increase, there's a 50% year-over-year change in the cost of your monthly payment. And so that clearly is going to impact um, prices and creates still creates a, a pullback um, situation, uh, an environment that's more of a seller, a buyer's market versus a seller's market. Now, Bank of America sees the 10-year the potentially going all the way to 2% over the next two, next 12 months. I don't know if I 
believe that. But if that happens, mortgage rates would fall to between four and four and a half percent. And that would probably be more of a neutral environment to where prices would be relatively flat. But the Fed wants to slow housing. That's one of their goals. Why? Because reduced home sales means that uh, there's less people going out and buying furniture and, and, and uh, you know, moving and spending money on gas to move all their stuff and hiring uh, 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 movers and things like that. And there's less demand for lumber and cabinets and windows and uh, things that can continue to clog up the supply chain and, and push inflation up. And so the Fed likes this pullback in the market or in the housing market. And frankly, I do too. And you should as well, once again, because it makes it healthier, brings inventory back to a more balanced situation. Now let's go to Crystal in San Jose looking at Eli Lilly. Hi. Um, I'm just wondering what do you think about it because there's a huge shop today and uh, is it a good buy opportunity? When you say huge drop, did it, uh, let's see, did it, is that after hours? No, let's see. You say um, huge drop? Not huge, but there's some yeah. drop. Okay. Yeah, down two and a half percent today, which, you know, not a huge drop, is down back down to its hundred-day moving average. So that's probably decent support. Uh, but Eli Lilly, oh yeah, so they had earnings. Earnings were down thirty-two percent. Revenue down four percent. And you know, I don't like that when it's trading at such a relatively high multiple. Now, for everybody out there, Eli Lilly um, sells branded pharmaceuticals to treat neurology, endocrinology, oncology, and cardiovascular disease. And this has been a strong a strong uh, performer over the years, just consistently growing their earnings, even through the pandemic. Uh, and so this is the first sign that that growth trend is abating. Uh, and I would ask why. Is this more of a one-time thing, or is it something that is going to uh, bring their, uh, their, their growth down dramatically, maybe even put it into reverse over the long term. Now, earnings expectations continue to, to continue to go up, but for next year, analysts are starting to downgrade that. So, um, I don't see this as a buying opportunity. Honestly, I think it's still a, a bit overvalued. Uh, actually, probably significantly overvalued. You're talking about enterprise value even of 36 times price to sales uh, around 10, which is uh, pretty expensive. So, I'm going to pass on Eli Lilly. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on these drug companies to not continue to raise their prices. And uh, you're talking about uh, Build Back Better, which is uh, going to allow the government to negotiate with Medicare prescription drug prices, which is, I don't know how much that can impact Eli Lilly directly. Uh, but overall, I just don't like that position uh, that the drug industry is in. Uh, because they've been kind of greedy over the years and just raising consistently drug prices and Eli Lilly is uh, likely uh, no different. And so uh, it's trading a high multiple. I don't like those pressures. I don't like that it's recently uh, getting reverse on its earnings and, and revenue. And so I'm passing on Eli Lilly. Thanks for the call. Now let's keep things moving. Here's a voice bank question from 888-99-CHART. I am concerned about the strength of the dollar, the devaluation, and wonder if you have any advice as to how to hedge for that. What kind of investment, ADRs, or what is it that I can do? Thank you. Uh, the D, are you talking about, I, I, obviously this is, I like live callers, I like to ask a clarifying question. 
the dollar has been going up. So the dollar is certainly not being devalued. It's actually gaining strength. Uh, now, are you worried about the reversal of the dollar? That's certainly uh, one way to one thing to be worried about. So first you have to, you have to understand your exposure to a weakening dollar. Uh, typically that's good for commodities. Uh, it's good for uh, companies that have uh, revenue exposure overseas. That is, that's pr typically pretty good. Um, so I would increase my exposure to those foreign investments. That's one way to take advantage of a weaker dollar. Include, uh, let's see, increasing my exposure to commodities, which, you know, we've, we've liked. Um, and there's, is there an ETF? I know UUP is a dollar ETF. You could short UUP most likely. I don't know of a short dollar. Well, I guess you could go long like an FXE. That's one way. So FXE is the Euro. There's FXY. There's a bunch of uh, Invesco currency ETFs. That's one way you can go long those particular names. The yen is one that's starting to gain strength as well as the Euro. So that's one way to get to, to buy into other currencies. Um, so if you are worried about a reversal of the dollar, uh, those are some ways to capitalize on that trend. But uh, dollar's not going away. Okay. Thanks for the call. Now let's touch on capital expenditures. And this is something that a lot of people don't talk about, but the biggest U.S. companies are stepping up their CapEx projects. And this is really an encouraging sign for the economy as a whole. And it shows that many companies are beginning to get more optimistic about the future. Now, CapEx is typically spending on big ticket items such as real estate, equipment, technology, and their goal is to fuel their growth and fund their fast-growing operations or optimize their inventory management systems. Uh, and capital expenditures among the S&P 500 companies have been growing at its fastest pace or fa faster pace than stock repurchases for the first time since the first quarter of 2021. So with all that money that uh, these corporations were getting, the cheap capital they're getting with uh, interest rates so very low, what most of them were doing were spending it on share repurchases because share prices were pretty cheap, especially early uh, mid part of 2020. But this is the first time where CapEx growth is higher than both share repurchases and dividends. So share repurchases we're up 10% year over year in the second quarter. Dividends, 14% in the second quarter, but CapEx up 20%, uh, which is encouraging. Now, this is one reason why the economy and stocks haven't fallen off a cliff. They're, they're expanding their businesses. And on top of that, you had Wall Street sentiment at the lowest level in more than five years in the month of July. So that's what you're getting this really relief rally because are we in a technical recession? Sure. Is it mild? Absolutely. And there's a lot of positives. We have a very diverse economy and it's very underrated that we have a strong consumer base. We have great technology companies. We have great industrial companies where we have a lot of energy and natural resources. Uh, we're relatively well-educated, although you could argue that maybe needs to need some work as well. But still, our economy is one of the most dynamic in the world and probably the most dynamic in the world. Now, companies in the information technology and communication services and industrial sectors, they've been the biggest contributor to CapEx growth. So IT, communication services, and industrials. So Alphabet or Google, 
They increased their CapEx from 5.5 last year to 6.8 is what they expect. And then GM, they are increasing their capital spending for the second quarter from 1.5 to 2.1 last quarter because they're moving into electric vehicles. PepsiCo, well, they're investing in digital to ensure stores are stockpiled with the right inventory. Uh, They've reported $1.5 billion in capital spending in the 24 weeks ending mid-June. That's up from $1.3 billion during the same period last year. And a lot of this could be attributed to, hey, they're, everything's restarting, and we didn't really invest too much in our business during the pandemic people were worried. And so there's a lot of pent-up things for them to do. And a lot of times, they were constrained with just the ability to execute on CapEx because they couldn't get the right parts. They couldn't, they couldn't get the things needed. They didn't have enough workers to execute on their investment projects within their, within their own business. But they have the money to do so. And now things are kind of freeing up for them to do that. Companies in the S&P have held, held about $1.6 trillion in cash and equivalents. Now that's down. That was at the end of the first quarter. That's down from $1.8 trillion at the end of 2021. So they're, they're, they're shelling some more money out. And a lot of this has to do with reshoring. So bringing production back to the U.S. Uh, some companies are, are cutting Intel. But I think that's more of specific to Intel. They're just, they're behind the curve when it comes to technology. And so you would think they should actually invest more, but they're not. So I think that's an insight into how Intel is probably going to continue to struggle. But labor challenges have sparked an increase in thing investment in automation, for example. And that's probably the biggest investment. So companies in the automation industry uh, have some nice headwinds or tailwinds, excuse me. So CapEx, not at a record, but it's definitely picking up, and that's a positive for companies and the, the economy as a whole. Now, let's squeeze in one more question before the break. At uh, this is Zach insurance. from Wisconsin. I'm a newer listener, and I've heard you guys mention to refrain from buying cyclical stocks in an investing environment like today. Could you elaborate more on this and explain why these types of stocks don't do well? I'll listen for the answer on the podcast. Thanks. Well, so there are different types of companies, and they are typically in various sectors. So cyclical sectors would be basic materials, consumer cyclicals, right? consumer discretionary, uh, financial services, and real estate. And you can argue you industrials and energy are also in that basket as well. But there's more; they're more of a mixed bag because there's some industrials that are very necessary and consistent and, and slow growers, and some are more tied to the business cycle. But in a slowing economic environment, those sectors tend to struggle more. Why? In basic materials, less demand for raw materials, uh, steel, copper, etc. Consumer discretionary, people have less money, job losses are increasing, spend less. Financial services, you have more defaults, bank losses go up. Real estate more defaults uh, on on, on mortgages and and less home buying. Uh, Energy, less demand for transportation. Industrials, like I said, kind of up and down. But there's there's a mixed bag there. And so that's really what it's about. It's uh, understanding the economic backdrop and whether the economic backdrop is going to be a headwind or a tailwind in cyclical names in an economic slowdown. That's a headwind for those names. So hope that clarified it a bit for you. 
Now we're heading into our last break, so give me a call at 888-99-CHART. Let's take a quick look at your financial to-do list. At the top, make that phone call to the Invest Talk Anytime listener line. Steve Peasley and Justin Klein will provide unbiased answers to your questions. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Hi, this is Anna from Wisconsin. I just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan and BAC, Bank of America, and I was wondering if you could let me know would be a better buy at this point. Longtime listener, and I'll listen for your answer on the podcast. Thank you. All right, looking at JP Morgan and Bank of America, two of the largest banks really in the world, but definitely in the United States. And typically, historically, JP Morgan has been the best run. Uh, but since the financial crisis, Bank of America has actually done a bit better on uh, performance. So I will say that, uh, talking about stock performance. But if you look at things like a return on invested capital, a return on equity, which is, let me go to, a, yeah, JP Morgan's still outperforming. So, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say JP Morgan. You know, it's, uh, its stock chart hasn't performed quite as well, um, but it does pay a better dividend. Uh, better run historically. Uh, definitely more aligned since the financial crisis. Bank of America got in a lot more trouble during the financial crisis than J.P. Morgan did. Um, but since then, I think they've kind of cleaned up their act, and I would say they're more on par with each other. Uh, but if I had to pick one or the other, I'd pick J.P. Morgan. But I would encourage you to look lower down the list into more of the regional banks. Those, to me, are the better buys, the better opportunities in today's market if you're looking in the banking sector. Let's go to Lars in Miami. Let's talk about a Roth IRA. Hi, Justin. Um, we've spoken before. I actually moved from San Jose to Miami now where there's a lower... Of course, Lars. Of course, Lars uh, drove me to the airport one time after a conference. Appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. so uh, in, in nice in Miami, it has lower taxes, I can report. Um, but Smart move. what I ran into today that I thought mm -hmm. your listeners would perhaps like to know is, is um, um, we had a big meeting where I work, and um, a question came up, um, you know, what uh, all these layoffs and people were afraid of the layoffs. And then what I suggested in that meeting is that people actually consider investing in Roth instead of um, just the traditional IRA. Um, mm -hmm. For the reason that if you do get laid off in these times where, you know, I know, Justin, you know, I work for a technology company. So uh -huh. um, if you get laid off, then in Roth, you can actually take a loan against the Roth and still um, just pay that back at a later time where you cannot do that with a traditional. And people uh -huh. in general have not thought about that. So I thought I would mention that on your program. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, I think Roth 401ks are one of the most underutilized aspects of workplace retirement plans. They just recently rolled a lot of them out and having that ability over the last five, seven years or so for most companies. And But remember, you have to go and make the change and most people don't think about it. And most people like their write-off of their 401k contributions each and every year. But if you're in a high tax bracket and Lars, you're in a, you're, you know, I don't know your tax bracket, but you're in the technology space and most people in the technology world, they make pretty good money, which means they're in a pretty high tax bracket. Um, so it may not make complete sense to do it all 
into your uh, a Roth because of you're locking in that high tax rate. But it's also could not be a one or all decision. And a lot of people do that with too many things. It's saying, oh, should I pay off my entire mortgage or not? Well, maybe you pay off a little and not all of it. Same with this. Maybe you split your contributions between a traditional 401k and a Roth 401k. So you get still some write-off, but like you said, you have the Roth contribution uh, side where you can take money out if you do lose your job or you move jobs, you roll that into an IRA or a Roth IRA in this case, and you'll be able to take the contributions because in a Roth for IRA, you can take the contributions out penalty-free at any time. So it's a nice little savings uh, piggy bank for you if you ever need it. And so uh, that's why I, I like this uh, this idea, Roth. And thanks for, for mentioning it because sometimes those little details uh, I don't get to uh, very often, but this is a detail that definitely needs highlighted. So thanks for the call and I hope you're enjoying my Emmy. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads. And we should hit the 44 million mark tonight thanks to you. You might be the 44 millionth download. You never know. Get your Invest Talk podcast anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, and be sure to rate and review on iTunes. And if you have a question with your review, we will prioritize your answer. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, Call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.